Let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you so much for the blessings of being born in this country, to be able to live here and have the freedom to worship as we please. Father, we know that there are Christians around the world who are persecuted, who are, have a hard time worshiping, who are economically persecuted, who are being killed for their faith. And Father, we pray for them, pray that you would strengthen them. We pray also, Father, that you would strengthen our faith because we live in a prosperous country. Lord, we pray that you would uh, take your word and embed it in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you can text your questions to that number tonight. I'd like to answer as many of your questions as we can. We are studying the Gospel of Mark. It's the first gospel, in my view, that is written. And it's written by Mark, I think John Mark, who was with Peter. And as he went around with Peter, this is according to church history, he uh, was asked by the people that listened to Peter's sermons and said, would you please write these things down so that as Peter moves on to the next town, we can continue to teach these things. And so the Gospel of Mark, according to tradition, was written down recording some of the stories that Peter told when he was preaching. And it reads that way. I mean, it's a series of images of Jesus. I love the Gospel of Mark and our challenge is to step back, sort of forget what we know about Jesus, and let the Gospel of Mark inform us about Jesus. So far, in chapters 1 through 6, we've seen Jesus do a lot of miracles. And Mark wants to emphasize, as obviously Peter did, that Jesus was no ordinary preacher. He's no ordinary prophet. He had unbelievable command over illnesses, over demons, over nature, and in fact, Mark wants to make sure you understand this is the Son of God. This is not some miracle worker, some magic worker. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Most of the Gospel of Mark so far, anyway, is happening in this area, the Sea of Galilee. So geographically, we're in this area most of the time. He goes into the Decapolis. This is a Greek area. These are not Jewish people to the east. They worship any number of gods. They're Greeks, they're Syrians, they're Phoenicians. I mean, they're Babylonians. They worship all kinds of gods. Jesus also goes up into this direction, into what is modern-day Lebanon, Lebanon is uh, ancient Phoenicia, and they worshiped a variety of gods, many of the Baals. Baal was one of their gods. And so Jesus wasn't just preaching to the Jews, although his main mission was to preach to the Jews, but he made several forays into Gentile areas to make sure they understood that the gospel, this good news, this event that was coming, the kingdom of God crashing into the world, into history, wasn't just for the Jews. And so geographically, we're working in this area. Well, let's look at chapter 7, and I want to talk to you about a really important idea. And in chapter 7, there are three stories, but they all deal with the same idea. Let's look at the first one. The Pharisees, they were the strictest sect of the Jews. And some of the teachers of the law, lawyers, scribes, who had come from Jerusalem, gathered around Jesus, and they saw that some of his disciples were eating food with hands that were, quote, unclean. They don't mean that they were greasy from working on their carburetor. What they meant was they didn't ritually purify them before they ate. If you go to Jerusalem, in most of the men's rooms, I have no idea what's in the women's rooms, all right? I'll just tell you what's in the men's room. You go in there, there's a two-handled uh, cup, pot. And basically, you would take one and pour water over one hand and over the other hand, and it was a ritual cleaning. I mean, they also, you know, use soap, wash their hands, 
but then they would ritually clean their hands. It was a tradition to, uh, like I say, it's a ritual. And so what they're saying is, your disciples don't ritually clean their hands. The Pharisees, in parentheses, and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Maybe ceremonial is a better word than ritual. Holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, meaning amongst the Gentiles, they do not eat unless they wash, because those Gentiles are, you know, you and I, we're the great unwashed sinners. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Jesus replied, and this is interesting, he doesn't answer the question, he answers the bigger issue, and that's a typical of Jesus. He said, Isaiah was right. Now remember, Isaiah was a prophet that spoke 700 years earlier. When he said about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are just rules taught by men. Well, what's he doing? He's setting up the idea of the traditions that the Jews had come up with versus Scripture, versus the commands of God. Was there anything in the law of Moses, the commands of God, that said you need to ceremonially cleanse your hands before you eat? No. That was something that was added amongst many other commands that's a tradition of the elders. He goes on to say this, you have let go, this is a really a great condemnation, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way. Now that's Jesus analyzing the situation. And then he goes on the attack and he wants to point out the hypocrisy of what they do. This is really astute. He said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Moses said, meaning the scripture says this, honor your father and mother. And it also says, anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. In other words, the command of God was that we should care for our father and mother. I mean, it took many forms. It meant respect them. It meant in their old age. I mean, they didn't have social security. They didn't have anything like that. It meant that you couldn't just let them be destitute. Obviously, they're your parents. You need to honor them. You need to take care of them or see that they're taken care of. So that was the command of God. But you say, verse 11, that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Therefore, you nullify the word of God by your tradition, and you do many things like that. Let me tell you what korban was. Korban is a Hebrew word, and what it means is, if you wanted to dedicate something to the temple, you wanted to donate something in kind, so you might take your car, and you might say, that is dedicated to God, I'm donating it to the temple. Well, today, if you donate that to the uh, Leukemia Society, they will take your car, they will sell your car, they will take that money, and they will invest it in leukemia research, right? But the way it went then was they kind of had a scheme going. And the scheme was this. If you dedicate it to the temple, well, okay, the temple technically owns it because you gave it to them, but they didn't take it from you. Well, you can use it for the rest of your life. And maybe at the end of your life, the temple would take it, sell it, put the money into the temple but they didn't actually take it as a donation, they let you keep it, but it was dedicated to the temple. So here's what would happen. 
So you got Jewish people who had a home, two garage, two car garage, 2.3 children, you know, a 401k. Your parents get really sick and they get old. And so the command of God said, honor your father and mother, take them into your home or pay for them to get the health care they needed. Instead, what these kids would do, they'd take their whole possessions and put it in a trust. Basically, they would donate it to the temple. So it's like, I'm sorry, I'd like to help you, but everything I have is tied up in a trust. In other words, everything I have is donated to God, so sorry, God, you, God, you can't do that. It was a way to use your possessions and not have to sell something, for example, to take care of your parents. Jesus is calling them out on getting around the law of God by technically donating everything they have to the temple, but they kept using it. They kept driving their BMW, and they didn't have to help their parents. That's what Jesus is nailing them on. He says, look, that's the command of God, is to care for your parents. You have instituted these traditions of men to circumvent it. He said, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. He really cuts to the heart of this. This is, was an ancient tradition, but actually this issue between Scripture, you know, what the Bible says, and tradition is something that's very, very relevant today. So let's take a detour and let's talk about this idea of Scripture and tradition. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, part of being a Christian is learning the art of spiritual discernment. And part of that art is learning to understand scripture and test human tradition against that scripture. And so you see that N.T. Wright, in a very orthodox kind of way, says that we, as Christians, place scripture above tradition. What were the Jews doing? He's, Jesus said, you're placing your tradition and circumventing scripture. But we place scripture first. This church uh, is in the Wesleyan tradition. So I kind of promised in a tweet I sent out that we'd talk about the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And this applies to more than just Methodist or Wesleyan churches. It really gets at what is our authority? Is the scripture our authority? Is reason or tradition? Well, here is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley lived in the 18th century, and he basically uh, understood the scriptures, and 200 years later, Methodist theologians came up with this, and it's pretty accurate. John Wesley said, I am a man of one book, the Bible, that is the sole supreme authority. But as you look at his teaching, you realize that he also had respect for tradition, the tradition of the church. It didn't supersede scripture in his view, but it was valuable. In other words, should we lightly go against 2,000 years of tradition? Do we really think we're so much smarter than 2,000 years of Christians? He said tradition matters. Thirdly, he said experience matters. He said your experience of the Christian faith should confirm the scriptures. I'm telling you what Wesley taught. We're going to get to what people do today, which sometimes is a little different. But Wesley said your experience should confirm what scripture taught. In other words, when scripture says that you are saved by grace through faith, you should feel secure in your salvation as you trust in God. In other words, your experience, not having anxiety, think Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He said, that's true because it's scripture, but you should also experience it as true. And then finally, reason. 
he said, faith is not blind. And we very much believe that here, that it's not like, well, science says all of this, but never mind, we're just blindly going to leap into faith. In other words, our faith is reasonable, meaning it encompasses our intellect as well. So Wesley, John Wesley, had a very, very good idea of how to understand Scripture. And it wasn't so much an equal quadrilateral, it was more a hierarchy, if you will, because Scripture was number one. In fact, this is from the United Methodist Church, their Book of Discipline. Now, admittedly, recent events might make you question this, but this is the official book of discipline of the United Methodist Church. Wesley believed that the living core of the Christian faith was revealed in Scripture, number one, illuminated by tradition, subservient, obviously, vivified or made alive by your personal experience. I mean, you lived out the truth of Scripture, number three, and confirmed by reason, number four. Scripture is primary. That is indeed what John Wesley preached, revealing the Word of God so far as it is necessary for our salvation. So the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition, holds to those four ideas, but instead of being equally angles of a, you know, a rectangle, they were more of a hierarchy, if you will. And so I think that as we wrestle with the idea of Scripture versus tradition or experience, and when we say experience, we also mean emotion, and then reason, if you think about it, Scripture gets attacked by all three of those things. In our world today, harmoniously, in a Wesleyan tradition, these are very harmonious. Scripture rules. It is the revealed truth of God. And tradition supports it, and experience verifies it, and reason is consistent with it. But in our world, all three of those things can be made to war against the truth of Scripture. A lot of churches have a tradition. The Jews, Jesus was saying, your traditions are at war with the Word of God. In other words, you've used your tradition and elevated it above the Word of God. People today elevate their experience or their emotions above the Word of God, and many elevate reason or science above the Word of God. So I thought we'd talk about that for just a little bit. This is a long quote, but it's an interesting quote. It's from Scott McKnight's blog on Pathios. Many, the way many Methodists use the term experience, this is a very modern way to look at it, in popular church circles, less resembles John Wesley, looks more like modern uh, sentimental twists. Because today, love and experience and sentimentalism have kind of merged a little bit in our secular culture. Uh, Methodist theologian Stanley Hauerwas, whom I highly recommend, says that certain church traditions should not be allowed to use some of the theological terminology because they've abused it. Uh, he talks about the Episcopalians mean something very different in the word incarnation than what the Bible means. And he says, I think the same needs to be said of some United Methodist doctrine, um, talking about experience, because sometimes when we employ the word experience, what we really mean is, this is how I feel. And the appeal to experience in this way continues to reinforce the rampant individualism of our surrounding culture that has infected the church. Sometimes folks in the pew believe that their faith is basically just between me and God. And, in fact, me and Jesus often ends up in reality being me with a little bit of Jesus thrown in. What he's talking about there is tradition was the problem for the Jews. They had elevated it above Scripture. Today, probably the greatest threat to the authority of Scripture is elevating our feelings, our experience above the Scriptures. And then in the secular world, a lot of times people want to take reason, which they would call science, and they want to oppose that to Scripture. Our tradition 
and the teaching of the Bible says these things are very harmonious. They are not at odds. And here's a great way of looking at the way our world looks at it sometimes is experience is the ruling idea for truth. What you feel is true is true. Secondly, reason. Whatever science tells you is true is true. Now, it will change in a few years, but nevertheless, you have faith in science. Then tradition, which is kind of going the way of the world, and scripture is at the very bottom, as if it's the least thing that you can trust. And so I like this diagram because we've sort of turned the pyramid upside down sometimes. So John Wesley, the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition, the tradition of all those Wesleyan churches, is really just the opposite of this, that Scripture is our guide. It is the true uh, guide into what is true about this universe. And our traditions should reinforce that. Our experience will indeed live that out. And our reason will ultimately be found to be very consistent with our faith. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is talking about. The Jews of his time had trouble with tradition. In our age, we have more trouble with our feelings, our experience. In other words, Scripture says this, but yeah, my experience has been this. And it's hard for me to think that that's true when I feel this way. The problem with that is, of course, that feelings can support the Scripture or feelings can be very, I mean, very unpredictable. I mean, if you think about it, there's no ultimate truth in experience. The experience that the Muslim in Somalia has is very different than the experience than the Christian in New Jersey. And the question then becomes, if truth is based on your experience, what's truth? You have no reason to, to say this is good and this is bad, this is true and this is false. There's no reason for that. That's why John Wesley said, we hold to the truth of God's revealed word. So that's what Jesus is talking about. But he goes on and he calls the crowd to him and he said this, listen to me everyone and understand this, nothing outside a man can make him unclean. So he's spoken to them about elevating tradition over scripture, but now he's gonna take on this issue of the ceremonial cleansing of your hands and the ceremonial uh, being clean, not touching a dead body, not touching a Gentile, don't shake hands with a Gentile or else you're unclean. He says this, nothing outside a person can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples didn't understand it. And they asked him, what in the world does that mean? He said, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside makes him truly unclean? It doesn't go into his heart. It goes into his stomach, and then it goes out of his body. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from inside his heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. What Jesus is saying that he's not saying don't obey the law of Moses because he kept the law of Moses, but he's saying a time is coming when cleanliness really amounts to what is in your heart. Think about Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, Jeremiah lived 600 years before Jesus. He's prophesying to Jews who are keeping the law of Moses, and he said, the time is coming, God says, when I will make a new covenant with my people, and I will write my law on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And sure enough, when Jesus comes, think about the Sermon on the Mount. As he says, do this, do this, do this, do this. No, he gets to the heart. He says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't take revenge. Get rid of anger and hatred and revenge. Put that out of your heart. 
and be forgiving. Talked about lust. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, take lust out of your heart. You see the theme of what he's saying? It's what's in our heart, what's in our mind, what's in our character maybe. We think about this in the West. That's what makes us unclean. It's not the ritual cleansing of hands. Those things were a foreshadowing of what God really wanted to do, and that is to cleanse our hearts of the evil that is within us. And that's what Jesus is talking about. N.T. Wright uh, has a great quote on this. He said, this passage should disturb us a little bit. Jesus is precisely not saying that external or physical things are irrelevant or bad. In other words, he's not saying that you can... Here was what the Gnostics said. These were Greek Christians who were thinking in the philosophy of Plato, and they said, well, spirit's good, body's bad, do anything you want with your body. Take drugs, sexual immorality, whatever you want, because really all that matters is your spirit. He's not saying that anything you do externally, it just doesn't matter, or that internal or spiritual things are good. He's not saying that if we get in touch with our deepest feelings or learn to listen to what our heart is truly telling us, this is back to that tradition and experience. Because a lot of times what you hear Christians say today is, yes, I know what the Bible says, but I know Christ and he is loving and I feel like it's loving to do this or to do that. And T. Wright is pointing out that Jesus is not giving a pass on that. He's not saying that learning to listen to what your heart is truly telling you, that you will find your real identity and then you'll be happy. He is insisting that good and bad external actions come from internal and spiritual sources. And therefore, the poisoned wells of human motivation, and this is the key, are the real problem to which the purity laws are pointing. In other words, what Moses was trying to teach people with these external rules was to realize, you know what? My hands may be clean, and yet they're bloody. And my body may be ceremonially clean, and yet I am guilty. I just foreclosed on a widow's home. That's one of the things Jesus accused the Pharisees of doing. I just decided that I felt like the commands of God could be circumvented by dedicating all my possessions to the temple. You see how this idea of tradition and experience comes into the idea of cleanness and uncleanness? What he's saying is you basically are taking the idea of cleanliness and you don't understand it was always about the heart. It was never about the ticky-dot rule of the law. In other words, if you don't want to obey God's law because you don't feel like it's the right thing to do, that's a problem, as he says, it's the poisoned well of human motivation. He says Moses was trying to educate you to the idea of being holy to be set apart, to be like God. And Jesus says he never intended that you just wash your hands. What he wanted was clean hands. He wanted a heart of justice and kindness and helping. That's what are really clean hands. That's what the New Testament is about. And so Jesus is talking about the idea of cleanliness, the idea of tradition, Everything is subservient to the scripture that really wants to transform our hearts. Okay? One more story. Here he's going to leave this area. He's in uh, this area of the Galilee, and he's going to go up to Tyre. Tyre is a city in modern-day Lebanon. In those days, it was Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were an ethnic group of people, ancient group of people, godless group of people who had occupied this area. And so he goes into Phoenicia, and here's what happens. Jesus left that place, and he went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Why? Because everybody heard that he was healing people by the thousands. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter 
was possessed by an evil spirit, came and fell at his feet. I mean, stop here for a minute. We read that and we just go right by it. Seriously, have, when's the last time you fell at somebody's feet? Yeah, I didn't think so. So my point is, that is the ultimate, ultimate symbol of humility. Like, I am completely helpless. I'm going to totally fall at your feet. And I am begging you, begging you to help me. So what she said was, this woman was a Greek. She's not a Jewish person. She's a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. In other words, she was Syrian, and the Syrians had actually conquered part of Phoenicia at this time. So they call her the Syrophoenician woman. Bottom line, she's not a Jew. And so she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her little daughter. And Jesus, now this is going to disturb you, Jesus said, first let the children eat all they want, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Now, I want to stop here for a second because I hope this offends you. If it doesn't offend you, it means that you have allowed your experience to trump the scriptures. We think of Jesus as loving. Loving, in modern terms, means nice. If Jesus was driving to work one day and he drove through the Chick-fil-A line, of course Jesus would only eat at Chick-fil-A, and so he would drive through the Chick-fil-A line, he would buy your lunch. He's just nice, right? Jesus, when you saw him downtown, he was helping an old lady across the street. And if he wasn't doing that, you saw him putting some money into the cup of one of the homeless people downtown. We tend to think of Jesus as being love, and we translate love into niceness. Jesus is nice. That's not nice. Period. I know you're thinking, well, you're a Bible teacher. You're supposed to tell me how Jesus is still nice, even though he said that. He's not being nice, because that's not who he is. And that's really interesting to us. It should offend us. It should make us step back and go, wait a minute, maybe I don't understand Jesus as well as I thought I understood Jesus. He says, basically, you're Greek, you're Phoenician, you don't worship God. I did not come here to heal all the people in Phoenicia. I came here to preach to the chosen people of God, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. In other words, I came to save all of humanity. I mean, he certainly did, no doubt about it. He came to die on the cross for this woman's sins if indeed she would repent and believe. But his point was, my ministry is to the house of Israel. And so he says, first let the children eat all they want. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What is she doing? She is basically, she's desperate. She, this is out of her power to heal her daughter. And so she's begging him, and he says to her, I didn't come primarily to help you. I came to preach to them. I have disciples who in time will preach to the whole world, and they will heal people all over the world. But I came for Israel, and she humbles herself and says, even the dogs eat the crumbs. Then he told her, for that reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. In other words, your humility, your transparency is what will get you into the kingdom of God. She is a great example of how you and I need to approach Jesus. I know, it's, it's a really upside-down story because you think, well, wait a minute. Jesus loves me. Jesus pursued me. Jesus would knock down walls to find me. It's all about me, and Jesus is all, loves me, right? No, that's not the biblical picture of this. The biblical picture is God so loved the world, you and me, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. No doubt, I don't want you to doubt God's love for us, we are not the center of the universe. In other words, this woman is a great example. We go to God with nothing. We go to God with nothing but our need, 
and he is gracious, and he will never turn people away who come to him with humility. This is a beautiful story. This is the Christian story. It's not about Jesus coming to find you and me because we're so important and, oh, maybe I can work you into my schedule. It's more about us falling at his feet saying, I'll take the crumbs from the table. And Jesus says, get up. I love you and I have healed you. That is the perfect expression of what it looks like to come to Jesus. Anything else is not the gospel. We need to realize we come to God with nothing no achievements, nothing else. We come to God as beggars, and we're just one beggar. The old statement, I love this, we are just one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. In other words, we're just people who Christ has saved through grace, showing other people, come meet this guy because he can heal you. That is a beautiful story. It should offend us, but the more we think about it, it's really the gospel. All right, no questions? This is so clear. Oh, there are questions. I was going really fast, hoping I could blitz by the questions. Well, one question about demons. Do we believe that these demons are real demon possessions or mentally ill people? Good question. Do we believe that these are real demon possession or just mentally ill people? Um, the scripture makes it clear that this is demon possession. Sometimes we have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery, meaning, oh, we, I hate, this is, this is how you can tell when somebody doesn't know what they're talking about, okay? Pay attention. We now know. Quote, we now know that climate change is this. We now know that genetics work like this because you know what's gonna happen? 20 years from now, somebody's gonna say, we now know, right? Meaning we don't know as much as we think we do. But when we look back at this, we say, well, we now know that they're just crazy people out there, right? They're just off their meds. And so they're in their manic phase or the depressive phase or schizophrenic or whatever. And that's what this is. What's behind that? I mean, this is a great question. Thank you for asking it. What's behind that says, well, maybe it's just natural functions. Stop and think about this. Let's suppose that's true. I just want to reason with you for a minute. Suppose that's true. Suppose Jesus is so dumb that he doesn't recognize the difference between mental illness and demon possession. Okay, first of all, you kind of have a problem with this whole son of God thing. Okay, but leave that aside. He still heals them. Think about that. It's not a very good argument that, oh yeah, they thought demons because they didn't understand about schizophrenia. Well, that's interesting because he seemed to be perfectly capable of curing it. Right? So my point is, that's not, it's kind of a disingenuous argument against Christianity. And I know you're not arguing, but I thank you for asking that question because the point is, if you want to take the supernatural out of everything that's happening, for example, a bigger question uh, started by David Hume 500 years ago and still today is, miracles didn't really happen. They were just dumb people who didn't realize what they were seeing. Here's the problem with that, is do you think Jesus came from the 21st century and went back and could do stuff they thought was magic? I mean, he lived 2,000 years ago. So if you're gonna rule out the supernatural, no demons, no actual healing of people born blind, no actual healing of people with literally crippled limbs, no, that was just their stupidity to not understand that somebody was able to do something to cure them. I mean, think about it. Does that, does that sound reasonable to you? That sounds completely disingenuous to me. It sounds like if you deny the supernatural, you have to come up with some really silly ideas to justify it. Here's the bottom line. 
either you believe Jesus cured them or not. If you think not, you have a massive problem because the scripture talks about this. Extra biblical scriptures talk about Jesus being a, quote, miracle worker. So somehow you're going to have to explain there were no demons and Jesus really couldn't miraculously do anything and yet, well, all these people did get healed. How'd that happen? In other words, supernatural explanation is the most reasonable explanation. The fact that Jesus had power over the elements, over the demons, over nature, is the most reasonable explanation. In fact, it's pretty silly to try to come up with some reasonable explanation for how does Jesus make a man who was born blind? He doesn't just have sand in his eyes, okay? He's been blind for more than 30 years, and now he sees. That is really hard to explain without admitting that actually the most reasonable explanation, as strange as it may seem, is he is actually able to do supernatural things. Okay, um, get off my soapbox on that. I'm just telling you, this isn't just scripture versus science. Science has no explanation for this at all. The supernatural explanation is the most reasonable explanation. So great question. Thank you for asking that. Yes, I believe they are demons. I think Jesus knows the difference between schizophrenia and demonic possession. And even if he didn't, he still healed it. That's power. Great question. Well, let's go on to the next story because I wanted to get through this. There's one more that I really want to talk to you about. He began to teach that the Son of Man must... Uh, actually, I want to go back one. I'm sorry. The Pharisees came. This is the most important thing. If we only have one we want to talk about. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. In other words, the Pharisees have come from Jerusalem all the way up to the Galilee. I mean, Podunk, right? This is nowheresville. But they go up there. They stay at the Motel 6. They listen to Jesus and they're trying to figure out how to debunk what this guy says because, whoa, people say he can heal all kinds of people. And the Pharisees go, well, yeah, he does seem to be able to do that, but he can't possibly be the Son of God. And so they begin to question him. And to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. And he sighed deeply. This is sort of a, how long must I put up with you idiots? Okay, he didn't say that, but I think he was thinking it. Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, you will get no sign. In other words, sometimes we ask today and we say, look, if God would just do something incredibly miraculous today so that it's all over Twitter, it's all over Instagram, hey, then I'd believe. Come on, God, do a sign. And Jesus goes, you're not going to get a sign. There's no faith in a sign. I've done signs throughout the millennia. I've written them all down in this book. If you still don't believe, a sign won't make any difference. He said, there'll be no other signs. And then he left, and he got in the boat, went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the disciples, this is interesting, had forgotten to bring bread. They're like, oh, my gosh, the 7-Eleven was closed. We didn't get any burritos. Anyway, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of, the, of Herod. And they talked to one another and they said, oh, I guess he realized we only have one piece of bread. Jesus asked them, what are you talking about having no bread? I'm not talking about bread. Do you not remember when I fed 5,000 people from the loaves? Are your hearts hardened? You have eyes, but you failed to see when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, he also, I skipped that story, but he fed 4,000 people. How many basketfuls of extra did you pick up? Well, seven. He said, do you still not understand? Meaning, first of all, his disciples were dense. Secondly, I mean, think about it. They're like, oh, we only have one loaf of bread. And they're like, he fed 5,000 people with the loaf of bread. I think he can make us some cold-cut sandwiches, right? So Jesus is like, you totally misunderstand. He said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. 
This is really profound. Yeast is used in the Bible to mean the influence. In other words, you take a little bit of yeast, you put it in some dough, and you knead it, right? And the yeast goes all through the dough. You don't know how it happens. You don't see it, but you just know. Put a little yeast in there, and the whole batch of dough is infected with yeast. Can you take the yeast out? No, you can't. It's just all through the yeast. He uses it to talk in a positive way about the good news, the gospel. He said, go spread the gospel. It's like yeast, and it will infiltrate the whole society, if you will. But he also talks about it in a negative way. He said, you know, the Pharisees, and they're teaching about this whole idea of tradition trumps scripture, or feelings trumps scripture, or reason trumps scripture. Beware of that. He said, that's also insidious. It's also something that will infect you. And the rest of the New Testament, when you read the letters, you'll hear Paul, Peter, John, James, all of them talk about the idea of there are people out there telling you things that aren't true. And those things are bad yeast. If you let them in, it can infect the whole organism. It can infect the whole church. That's a bad thing. And what he's saying is be careful about what those Pharisees are teaching and be careful about what Herod is teaching. It's interesting that he picks those two things. Pharisees, the most devout Jews of the Jews. I mean, they followed the law and more than the law, and they were the people that not only followed the law, they're the ones that told you you weren't following the law. Kind of like my neighbor, who I had this neighbor one time who had perfect lawn. And I was embarrassed. I wouldn't mow my lawn at the same time he was mowing his lawn because I felt like I was not worthy, you know, to be in the presence of this beautiful tiff green lawn. And so he was also very helpful. He would come over and he'd say, you know, you ought to use this or this or this or this to get rid of all those weeds. And I thought, you get rid of these weeds, I'm going to have nothing but dirt. You know, weeds are my lawn you know, at this point. And so not only was he righteous, you know, he was a righteous lawn guy, he also told me what I needed to do to be righteous. Well, that was the Pharisees, right? They're the most righteous. Herod was the most secular Jew you could get. He said, I'm a Jew. He was what we'd call today a cultural Christian, secular Christian. I'm a Christian in name, but if you put me on trial for being a Christian, you could never convict me. No collusion, no, no, sorry, different deal. Anyway, you could never convict me of being a Christian because I don't do anything Christian. That's Herod. You have legalism, I do everything and more, and not only that, I'm oppressive. And license, meaning <laughs> I don't do anything Christian at all. I don't do anything Jewish. He says both of those are bad leaven. Both of those things will infect you. He said, beware of the teaching of people that want to put emotion or reason above the scriptures and beware of the people that want to put men's traditions above the scripture. All of this fits together. Jesus is brilliant in what he's trying to say to them and what he's trying to say to us. And so I guess the takeaway, if I want to close this out a little bit, the takeaway is simply this. That message is just as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Now, do we have the issue of korban, you know, and putting that tradition above Scripture? No, but we have others, don't we? We have all kinds of man-made rules we'd like to put above Scripture. Do we have Herod and the liberalism, if you will, of the I'm a Jew, but I don't act like a Jew? No, but we still have people putting experience or emotion, people putting reason or science above Scripture, instead of making it all work harmoniously, we make these things be in conflict. That's still true today. And so Jesus' warning is beware the teaching of anyone that wants, and I'm going to frame this in that Wesleyan quadrilateral because Wesley was brilliant in the sense that, and he was biblical. Even That's more important than being brilliant. He said, Scripture is the revelation of God. And tradition and emotion and reason support that. They verify that.
they're not at war with that. In our culture, people are at war with that. And I think sometimes the issues that we have with the scriptures are usually, usually not doctrinal, like I read the scripture this way, you read it that way. Our problems, just look around the world, look around the American political scene, you're seeing an awful lot of this, and I want to give you a framework to understand it. Think about it. Is somebody putting tradition or emotion or, quote, reason, the religion of scientism, if you will, above Scripture? That will explain a lot of what is happening. And Jesus warns us. He says, beware of that, because do you believe that what I have told you is really true? And we as Christians say, in fact, we do. We believe you are who you say you are, and we believe you can do what you say you can do. And so Jesus, in talking in this section of Mark, he talks about this idea of tradition, scripture, cleanness, the idea of the heart. All of these things tie together, and they're all very relevant today. Well, our next lesson gets to the literally the middle of the gospel of Mark. And if you think about it, 16 chapters. And the way ancient documents worked was this, is the most important thing was not at the beginning and it's not at the end. Now, the way we do it, we like to put, if you want to make a persuasive speech, you put your most important point in the first paragraph and you repeat your most important point at the end. That's not the way it was done in the ancient world. Everything built to the middle. The beginning built up to it, and the back end reinforced it. And so next week, you see the heart of the gospel, and it has to do with human greed and ambition versus grace. So this week, beware of the leaven of the culture, and next week, we'll talk about greed. Okay? Thanks, guys.